As a rogue, it's easy for me to spot the perfect mark. I get anything I want with a little distraction and patience. But as a role player, screw patience. I can't wait for my Dungeon Crate to arrive every month. Dungeon Crate brings me amazing RPG accessories like dice, minis, adventures, and lots more. And rumor has it around the guild, you also get a digital crate with even more secret extras. Dungeon Crate has what I want. Take what you deserve and become a member of Dungeon Crate today at DungeonCrate.com. And use the coupon code APPENDIXDC for $5 off any new subscription. I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome to the Appendix N Book Club. As you may have guessed by the name of this episode, we have a very, very special guest today. We will be interviewing Michael Moorcock, who is the author of the Elric and Hawkmoon stories, as well as many others. Uh, He is the youngest author on the Appendix N list and the only one who is currently living. And this month, December of 2019, He is turning 80 years old. We are deeply, deeply grateful to have Michael Moorcock on the show with us. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Absolutely. So I guess just to get one big question out of the way is, are you even aware of what the Appendix N is? Is this this a phrase you've heard before or not really? No, not really. But then I haven't heard much um, out here in Texas. I live in relative isolation. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So in 1979, Gary Gygax, who was one of the creators of Dungeons and Dragons, put together Mm -hmm. a list of the authors who he says inspired the gaming and that he recommends people read. And you are one of the names on the list. And he specifically, it was 1979. So at the time, he had recommended that people read the Elric stories and the first two Hawkmoon stories. So you appear on this list of people who he recommends checking out. Yeah, I remember Gary wrote to me um, when when D&D was first starting and um, asked me if I if he could use my um, Elric mythology, whatever, you know. And uh, I said, sure, he could. I mean, there was no there was no um, business uh, contract or anything like that done. I just said, yeah, go ahead and use it. I didn't mind. Um, and then somebody else, another gaming company, uh, Chaosium, also asked me, and I said, sure, you can use it too. Um, <laughs> and then the next thing that happened was Chaosium was threatening to sue D&D. <laughs> and there wasn't a contract for any of it. I, I just said, go ahead. Um, so finally, I think my agent sorted it out, and uh, Chaosium got it, and uh, D&D dropped it. Um, which I was surprised about, you know, because I, I really didn't, um, you know, I hadn't seen it as, as any kind of a, of a money-making thing or anything like that. I just thought, you know, we were all in it together, doing, doing something kind of cool, you know? Sure. <laughs> and for that, 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 you know, you, I'm sure you know yourselves how, how quickly it got commercialized and, uh, and, and various you know, parties became uh, antagonistic and so on. So it was. Uh, I, I really backed away from it at that point. I, I didn't really want anything to do with them. I didn't have an awful lot to do with Chaosium either. 
because mm-hmm. Chaosium shortly after that stopped paying me anyway. Oh. Um, so um, there was a lot of trouble over that and people were complaining about not getting stuff and so on. Mm-hmm. So I, I just stayed out of it. Um, it, it got too, uh, uh, well, just too business-like and, uh, you know, and too much money involved and all that kind of stuff. So that was it. And, and since then, I've, I've, I've got my stuff back from Chaosium and I've pretty much left it at that for the time being and until I, you know, until I know what's going to be happening. Right. Sure. So how, how do you feel in general about your, your, your fiction in other mediums? I mean, that's obviously got to be a, a shock sometimes to see it. You know? It is. I mean, sometimes it is. Um, I generally like it. Um, you know, I'm, 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 just, I'm just fascinated by what spin people put on it, really. Um, it's, uh, it's, um, uh, I, I don't think there's anything I haven't actually enjoyed, you know, because it's all different. It's different, different people's ideas about stuff and so on. I, I to be fair, I haven't read any of the gaming books and sometimes, um, I've seen a list, a chronology of Elric and thought, I didn't write that <laughs> and realize, you know, that it's, that it's all in the game books and people will ask me questions around the game books, which I can't answer because I've, you know, I haven't, not, I, haven't I haven't read those stories. Right. Right. Um, it is really amazing. I mean, I think Jeff and I would be fair to say we both came to your fiction through the gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a, a good maybe percentage of the, your fans yeah, I, the last I 30 or so, 40 yeah. years have come through initially through gaming, yeah. but that sort of, brings us down to how you came to fantastic fiction because you started as a fan as well, right? Quite young. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I, I started doing a fanzine, Edgar Rice Burroughs fanzine when I was uh, 14. I think I did the first issue and then, oh, then cool. I, I, did up, um, I did up for a while. You know, they were, they were the old mimeograph fanzines. Um, and it was very similar in some ways to internet communities, you know, except it was all done on mimeograph and mail. And, uh, and there were about 50 people involved, probably at most, you know, and, the, and so you could afford it. You could afford to mimeograph a fancy. <laughs> but this is ultimately what led you into doing your professional work, right? And not so far, not so long after that. Well, yeah, I mean, I I did a I did a I did a kind of Edgar Rice Burroughs type of um, serial in in the fancy for a while um, until readers complained, so I dropped it. Um, <laughs> that, those were the uh, the Sojan stories. Is that yeah, the Sojan stories. Yeah, and then later, I, I when I I, I Got to be editor of Tarzan Adventures through um, through the fanzine. Really, I did an interview with the editor and uh, of, of Tarzan Adventures as he was then, and he was just an old hack. He wasn't really interested in you know the character or Burroughs or anything else. And I was really deeply disappointed by this. Of course, I was sixteen at the time, and I found this outrageous that, that somebody <laughs> wasn't even interested in you know, and the character was doing. So I, I, when I went back, I wrote an inter- the, uh, wrote up the interview with him and said what a what a hack he was, basically. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then sent him the interview. I sent him the uh, the fanzine with the interview in it, and he told me that I he, you know I'd never work in Fleet Street again. Not that I'd ever worked in Fleet Street before. So <laughs> so I think he went off and did a gardening magazine after that. And the the edit the um, the publishers of the of the uh, of the Tarzan magazine uh, wrote to me and asked me if I'd like to be assistant editor at that point. And the then editor, a guy called Alistair Graham, who's still a friend of mine, um, and his son is a friend of mine, um, 
wrote to me and said, look, you know, I'm, I'm planning to leave this job because I want to go off and explore the world with my banjo. Um, and, uh, uh, and if you, you know, if you take the job, you'll, you'll be editor in about six months. So I said, all right, I'll, you know, I'll do it. I was still, I wasn't too sure about it, partly because I didn't, you know, I didn't have any professional experience at all. Um, so I, 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 that's how it went. I, I became assistant editor and then very quickly became editor and turned the thing into like a, a, a sort of a tiny pulp magazine, really, uh, with the Tarzan comic at the beginning and, uh, um, and then a whole lot of fantasy stories and stuff like that. Um, and it, it, you know, by, it, I filled it with all the people that I knew from from science fiction fandom at that time. Right. So at that point, had you already been in contact with the likes of Paul Anderson or Fritz Leiber? Or, or, um, yeah. uh, not at, uh, uh, maybe Fritz, yeah. Um, not Paul, I don't think. Um, but uh, there was a magazine called Amra, another, um, a Conan fanzine, really. And, uh, you know, we exchanged fanzines and, and Fritz was a contributor to Amra. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's right. We had a discussion about what we should call this new form of fiction that we were you know, trying to do. Um, Fritz, of course, had been already been doing um, the Fafford and Grey Mouse stories. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Paul had done The Broken Sword. Right. Um, and Fritz, Fritz came up with, I think, I think I came up with heroic fantasy and Fritz came up with sword and sorcery. And they, they've since then been pretty much used, you know, to describe the genre. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you're yeah. also credited with coining the term multiverse. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, although, to be fair, um, uh, William James, the philosopher, had done it in the 1890s as well. I didn't know that at the time, but um, <laughs> you, know, uh, you, you only have to claim, you know, that you invented something and 50 people will come up and say, no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, of the other kind of early seminal writers of fantasy fiction, people like Lord Dunsany, Clark Ashton Smith, were you, are you a fan of their works? Yes, I was very much um, Dunsany and Clark Ashton Smith. Um, uh, um, I, in fact, I was just looking at Dunsany um, earlier today. Um, yeah, and I really liked him, although although they were a bit short on plot for me. But but, <laughs> but I loved the worlds that they you know they conjured up. And I know that historically, uh, you have been a been very vocal about your thoughts on Lovecraft and his racism. I'm curious, do you still feel that way? And do you see any merits to his work? Um, well, I mean, there must be merits to his work. I wouldn't have so many fans. Um, <laughs> so I can't, I, can't, I can't say it's no good. Um, I, I try all the time to read Lovecraft, and I cannot read him. I just can't do it. I mean, it's not just his racism, although... You know, there's, there's, it's the same kind of racism you find in Agatha Christie. It's not like, you know, he was the only one doing it. Um, but, you know, the, Agatha Christie, I think, is the biggest selling writer in the world, in the history of the world. Um, and, uh, and she, you know, her books are horrible in terms of, of, of the racism in, in them. Yeah. Uh, but, um, and I can't read those either. Perfection. It scares me too much. <laughs> I can hand it out, but I can't take it. <laughs> you can write. You can write the. You know, the the crimes of Irkun. He's like how you. Yeah. yeah but yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so obviously, Robert E. Howard is is a uh, you know a large looms large in. in yeah, 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 yeah. He, um, he did. What were the things that specifically? I mean, there's the energy, the the uniqueness of that aspect, but what were things really? I think it. 
I think it's his writing. I mean, he, he, he can write very well. Sometimes he doesn't write that well. I mean, that's probably true of all of us. But, but um, I think it's almost specific to Pulp Fiction. And I don't think it's bad writing. I mean, it's just not bad writing. It's just a kind of writing. It tends to be a little bit purple. Um, but it can be very poetic. And I and, and think I've always responded well to visual mm-hmm. fiction, you know, that, 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 that gets me visually. Right. Um, so I think it was that. The Conan, Conan books were almost impossible to get. There was one Conan book at the time um, that was out, um, um, but it was The Hour of the Dragon, but it had a different title in, in Ace Books. Mm-hmm. And it was also done in hardback in England. So you could get it pretty easily um, when I was a kid, or maybe a little, I can't remember how old I was. And you could only get them in sort of limited, small limited editions from Gnome Press. And, and they cost a fortune. I mean, for, for me as a kid, you know, they were almost out of my league. How soon after that did you feel, I mean, you were writing, uh, you know, Burroughs influence fiction. How soon after that did you conceive of Elric or start writing sort of Howardian sort of well, sorcery? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't, I was really a journalist by that time. I was working on, at a, a company called IPC, which turned out huge numbers of comics and magazines and, and hardback annuals, all sorts of stuff. And I was working more on the Western stuff than anything there. I mean, we had uh, we had Kit Carson and, and a character called Buck Jones, who, who he'd just become a hero there, you know, nowhere else. Everybody else had forgotten about him. Um, and I was, uh, I did some fantasy, um, a few kind of historical fantasies for various various magazines and so on. I was writing science fiction, but not not fantasy. And I'd published some science fiction. I was I was in a pub with the editor, and the editor said he he did three magazines: science fiction adventures, which was supposed to be a kind of adventure story magazine, but actually published the most sort of intellectual science fiction of all. So I don't know how it ever got that. And new worlds and uh, science fantasy, and he was uh, his science fantasy was his favourite of the three he edited, and he was saying sort of nostalgically, I'd really like to to run something like the old stories. You know, I wondered, you know, I, I think maybe I'd like to try one and see how they went down with the readers. Um, and so he said to me, you know, would you like to give it a shot? And I said, sure. You know, I mean, I was a working writer. I'd, I took on anything that was going um, and sent him the first Elric story. And he he liked it. And they just went down very well with the readers. Um, so I, I was surprised, you know, I, I didn't see it as being greatly different from anything else I was doing. Um, but he he did, and, and he kept commissioning new ones and new ones until finally I, I did Stormbringer. Uh, and I did Stormbringer thinking that was going to be the last Elric story I ever, I ever little, wrote. Little did you know. Um, uh, yeah, and of course I killed him. And, and that, you know, that's, that's how it all, all happened. But I, I didn't have any huge expectations of it at all because at the time, um, the were really reasonably well-known and even then not very well-known were the Tolkien books, um, The Lord of the Rings. And The Lord of the Rings was considered to be, by quite a lot of people, a bomb story. They couldn't work out what Middle-earth was. So most of the critics of the day... Um, tried to frame it in a kind of, uh, you know, sort of semi-realistic, futuristic story. Hmm. And, uh, and in fact, Tolkien got an award in 1957 
from uh, he got a Hugo, a special Hugo in I think it was a Hugo in 1957, which was a rocket ship, of course, and he was completely baffled by the award. Um, he was very nice about it, um, you know, very, very pleasant, but he didn't know why really he was getting it. Oh, oh, thank you very much. Um, and uh, um, and uh, you know, and that—that's how things were. I mean, considered to be any market for fantasy. Then Don Walheim in America discovered that the Lord of the Rings was out of copyright in America. It had never been registered in America. So he basically pirated it and put it into ace paperbacks. Right. And those three ace paperbacks uh, alerted to the fact that he had a market in America. And that's what started the, uh, the college enthusiasm for 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 Tolkien which which was what it where it came from originally neither he nor Lewis were particularly well known at that time I mean they were considered to be marginal writers I mean you know decent writers but marginal yeah. um I mean I still think Lewis was I mean that's really what what he was um except for his science fiction books which was considered unreadable again they were both very nice people Lewis was the person who who told me to write to Tolkien. He gave me Tolkien's address and said, you know, just write to him. So I went to see Tolkien. He was, again, very pleasant. Um, I mean, he didn't give me a whole lot of time. It was pretty pretty clear. You know, there I was, a, whatever I was, 16-year-old. And I told him I hadn't actually read The Lord of the Rings, which I hadn't. I hadn't read any of his books at that time. Um, but again, he was still very nice about it, not knowing really what to ask him. And uh, just because Lewis had, suggested that I do it. I mean, it a, Lewis used to go to the uh, pub where all the other science fiction writers went to in those days, if you like that. There wasn't a kind of hierarchy of, of fans and writers anymore. Than, it was basically just a lot of people. Well, it wasn't a lot of people. It was a very few people who happened to like fantasy and science fiction because they were considered crazy by the rest of the world. <laughs> so when did you actually get a chance to read Tolkien's work? To be honest, I didn't like it. It, it's uh, there's a there's a tone to it which which um, pretty much all English children's fiction has. It feels to me as an English person who grew up with children's hour on the BBC, which always had that tone that they were basically trying to ease me in you know into into going to bed, you know to be a good kid. And I didn't like stuff that you know that asked me to be a good kid. <laughs> so I didn't like I didn't like any of that stuff. The tone of it. Uh, Harry Potter's the same for me. Uh, it's just a, just a feeling. I can't help it. Um, and I don't like um, children or indeed hobbits as protagonists. I've never been able to get on with kids as protagonists. Uh, it's I, I, I like grown-ups as protagonists, even if they're not really grown-ups, um, like Conan. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, um, you know, that's that's that that it's it's just a taste. It, I don't. Uh, I I didn't. Um, I did write, long ago I wrote an article about Tolkien and it's been raised again and again. Um, I've, I think the New Yorker described me as the anti-Tolkien. And <laughs> I, I don't feel that way at all, you know. I mean, I, I, again, I'm not going to argue with a, you know, with a million readers, as it were. I wanted to do something a bit more, for me, gutsy, you know. Again, more in the pulp tradition than, uh, than the... Uh, children's literature tradition. Elric is very much the creation of an angry young man. Right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. What was going through your life at that point that, that drove that? And why did you create him as a Conan? You know, yeah. lanky, as opposed to, you know, broad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, well, I, 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 well, partly because um, that was a character that interested me more. You know, I, I, I was just, um, I seemed to be able to switch very easily, you know, from a from a very sort of highbrow novel of character to um, to a startling stories for 1950 and, and enjoy it almost as much. So I, I've never had any difficulty with that. Um, it's just my own taste, you know. It's, as a kid, um, you know, as, as writing the first Elric stories, to, to be honest, I'd already started to work out a character talked about it with a friend of mine, really a, a um, I can't remember what they, oh, a pen friend, really, because I don't think I'd ever met him at that point, a guy called Jim Cawthorn, who did a lot of, a lot. Of, well, he did the first Tolkien illustrations, um, apart from Tolkien's. He did and, your, uh, uh, Hawkman graphic novel, right? So, um, um, and uh, again, we were just two fans, and he was illustrating my fanzine. Um, and Jim, uh, Jim and I sort of, you know, were both, enthusiasts started talking about doing another character and I, I suggested Elric um, and there was a there was a character a detective story character or a, really a villain in a, in, in a in editing at Fleetway and the detective was uh, called Sexton Blake and he was he was uh, he'd been going since 1895 in a whole bunch of magazines and and, and I was primarily an editor on that magazine, and Zenith the Albino, as he was called, um, was was my favourite villain. He was a pre-war. He died out about, I suppose, about 1940 something. I think he was supposed to have died in a in a in a bomb. You know, some bomb had dropped on him. Um, but I loved the character, and uh, he was very similar to Elric. Um, I in fact lifted him. I'd, Call it a tribute. I mean, I, it was just, I was just, I really liked the character. He completely faded away in terms of having any, any readership at all. And partly I was sort of trying to revive interest in, or Zenith the albi albino, yeah, as he is in American, um, uh, the, um, Zenith the albino in, in, as we say in English. Um, and uh, he, uh, he was pretty much, Elric in a top hat and tails, really. Um, he he uh, he was a very elegant. Um, he had a had a special cigarette case with uh, with um, drug cigarette. I think they were opiums. They were called opium cigarettes. I mean, it was, it was a fairly naive idea about uh, drugs. You know, <laughs> he had this cigarette case with opium cigarettes in it, but one cigarette with a special red band around it was a sign of a captured. He would smoke and and die. Because he would rather die than ever be captured, um, so he's a very romantic character, and I'd, I'd been reading and collecting his stories for years. Um, uh, but pretty much as I wrote the first pages, he changed. Uh, but if you ever come across a, um, a uh, there's only one novel that was ever published called Monsieur Zenith. Um, you mentioned romance, and that's uh, I think a lot of your fiction is quite romantic. Obviously, you've had such a long career. What does that mean to you now, as opposed to when you were in your late teens, and and you've re 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 uh, revisited Elric a couple times? And how has that changed, also? Well, I mean, I've, I've in revisiting Elric quite a bit. I mean, it's it's rather odd because he's you know he starts off as as you say a, a troubled teenager. 
he was very much based on 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 me as a teenager. But I, but there were, wasn't anything special about me as a teenager. You know, I I I fell in love with with um, with unapproachable girls and you know all the stuff that teenagers. Do. So I, I it, and 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 wallowed in self pity as well, which of course Elric does to a large extent. <laughs> uh, so, so um, you know, it, it was it was it was just just teenage angst, and he grew up a bit. So I've, it's a strange situation where I've got him in his in the early in the early stories. He's a, he's a teenager, um, but in his early more mature than he is in uh, in the later in his later career. Right, it's, right. it's yeah. So speaking to that, do you find that it is you would would you sooner recommend somebody read the Elric stories in the order in which you wrote them, or in the chronological order in which they were placed later? Um, well, I tried to do that with a with a recent edition, an illustrated edition, which um, Del Rey put out. I don't think readers were comfortable with it. I mean, readers who have, who knew a lot about Elric obviously liked the editions, um, and they didn't sell that badly, but but. Uh, I think it was confusing to to the new reader. What I've done with the new uh, recent editions, I put them back into Elric's order, as it were, you know, from from the beginning to the to the end. So Stormbringer mm-hmm. comes at the end, and and the earlier stories that I've written come at, come at the beginning. And um, I know it really helps having the author himself be the person who is responsible for for kind of crafting this. But now the the Conan stories were largely available in the 60s and 70s because of the Lancer Ace paperbacks, which Elspreg DeCamp and Lynn Carter were editing, putting into their own chronological order, changing the stories, writing in their own, and kind of creating little bridge bridges between those. How did you feel about those at the time, or how do you feel about them now? I didn't read those. I read the Gnome Press editions. Uh, Sprague had already started to do that editing, not with Lynn Carter, but with uh, Berger, um, who I think was Swedish, um, he was the first guy to do a new uh, Conan story with with Sprague. Wasn't that bad, you know? I, I I quite enjoyed it, but at that time I was glad of anything that was uh, you know was that was sword and sorcery or, or whatever you call it, heroic fantasy, um, and I, and <laughs> I wasn't particularly critical of it. Um, now I probably would be, and and Lynn, who I think was a great guy. I mean, I really like Lynn Carter. But Lynn was not a great writer, um, <laughs> and, and, um, and, that, and oddly enough, Sprague was really good when he wrote his own stuff. Um, he wrote a series called about Brazil having conquered oh, uh, space, Viagens uh, interplanetary. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and I love those, you know, because they were kind of sword and sorcery almost, um, and appearing in Astounding, which wasn't famous stuff. Um, so it's really sword and planet, I suppose or nearer to Sword and Planet than anything else. And they were really well-written and very good and often very funny because Sprague was was primarily, um, you know, a, a, a comic writer. I mean, he wrote funny stories. Mm-hmm. All his natural talent and, and do these really fairly horrible, um, you know, pastiches of, of Conan that, that Howard would never have, never have done. As nowadays, Sprague is, you know, is almost considered a villain, you know, for what he did with two of the stories. Yeah. But, but really, it was done out of enthusiasm by both of them. I mean, they they were writing essentially homages to to uh, to Howard. Um, I was asked to do one. I almost did one. Um, uh, Fantastic Universe, 
was briefly edited by um, by a guy, um, the guy who'd done Startling Stories. Startling Stories was my favorite pulp, really. Uh, that and uh, Planet Stories. And uh, um, I can't remember his name. And Sam came back into editing briefly for about one year on uh, on Fantastic Universe. And uh, he had another guy working with him called Hans Stefan Santerson, um, who, was, who was a really, again, a really sweet guy, but the most boring man on earth. I, I, I mean, you couldn't get through a dinner with him without wanting to cut your wrists. I mean, he was just, just but he was, he was a great enthusiast. And had asked me to do a Conan story and, and Sprague with Sprague's blessing because Sprague was the guy kind of you know controlling the stuff at the time. And uh, so I said, okay, I'll do one. But the magazine collapsed before I actually wrote the stories. And I incorporated some of that material into later Elric stories. Probably just as well then. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think so. We've, sp- we've spoken a lot about Elric, but uh, you know, obviously the Hawkmoon and the Corum um, highly influential. Do they resonate with you as much, or is Elric still the sort of the, the sort of closest to your heart in a way? Elric's the closest to my heart. I mean, I still like them all. I, I used to write the Hawkmoon stories in three days each. I'd give them. I only had three days, so I, you know, I had to do other work in the week to <laughs> to make up the money. And I had kids and and a magazine to support, and so I I um, write a Hawkmoon book. Um, a, 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 and if you look at them, they're all exactly the same length. I mean, they're precisely. They all end on the same number of pages. Um, and uh, um, but I, you know, I, I I work and make an overall story to the the four main books. Um, and I, I'd write them. And as I wrote them, a friend would be sitting on the sofa behind me, he'd be editing them as I wrote them. And, and, and he'd, you know, he'd, 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 any misspellings or, you know, um, anything like that, he'd, he'd pick up and, and so I'd change it. And I wouldn't actually read them. And then I'd just send them off to the publisher. And, and um, I think I sent the third one off to the publisher. I'd, be, I'd written it in bed because I had, I had smallpox, not smallpox, but a reaction to smallpox jab that, that you had to get to get into America at that time. So I, I was about to leave for America. Um, sick, basically, you know, raving almost. And I, I had no idea what it was like. I sent it straight off to the to the to the editor in New York and then got better and got on a plane and, and went to New York and met Larry for the first time. And uh, we had lunch and I said to Larry, you know, what did you think of the book? I'm afraid I haven't read them either. So the only person who presumably read those books before they went to the public was the printer. I mean, assume the printer. Because <laughs> <laughs> I haven't read them since. I, I've read the comics. Um, the comics uh, that um, first, I think it was called First Comics in mm-hmm. Chicago, did a, did a set. And they were, Roy Thomas wrote the script. And Roy was very faithful to the books. So what I used to do when I when I wrote a sequel, I'd look at look at the comics to see you know to see what uh, what Roy had done and uh, and write them from the comic. I get I fall asleep reading my own stuff. It, it's it's it, I really do. I I um, if I if I get insomnia, um, I'll I'll get up and walk around the house and I'll pick up one of my own books or, and uh, and I'll fall asleep almost instantly as soon as and my wife Linda can can uh, can. Uh, vouch for that. I mean, she's seen me slump there with, with a copy of, I don't know, you know, 
of chess. Right. Um, it doesn't take me any time at all to get to sleep, as long as I'm reading my own stuff. <laughs> um, now, speaking of uh, when we were talking about Elspring to Camp and Lynn Carter earlier, I know that you belonged to the Swordsman and Sorcerers Guild of America, uh, which I believe Lynn Carter started and many of the authors we discussed were a part of. Was that a formal group or was that just kind of something that they just formed and threw a bunch of people's names into? He wrote to us telling us that we'd join. <laughs> <laughs> he just said, I've got this, you know, we've got this thing called, uh, whatever it's called, Swordsmen and Sorcerers or something. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and you're a member. And there are only, I think, about seven of us. There's John Jake, Sprague, um, Paul, um, Fritz Leiber, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, Fritz, and um, oh, and Andre Norton. Um, Andre, oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. But uh, but um, the only time there was a meeting that when I was actually present, and I didn't have time to go, so I never actually met any of my any of the people I didn't already know. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, so it wasn't really a very uh, serious uh, an excuse to have a drink together occasionally. Fair. Now, speaking of Andre Norton, she was one of the very few kind of prominent women writers in the field at the time. And in the Appendix N, we have three female authors that are on the list. We've got Andre Norton, Margaret St. Clair, and Lee Brackett. I'm curious if you have any opinions on the three of them, or if you have any other female authors from the era that you really personally enjoy. I was a huge fan of Lee Brackett's and her husband, Ed Hamilton. Um, in the, I think, the early 60s. No, it must have been the, the 50s. Um, they were over in England. And uh, Ed, Ed uh, just, um, no, it had to be the 60s, sorry. Um, um, and Ed came up to me at the convention and he said uh, he just read the, uh, the science fiction story that I invented the multiverse in. They used to call me the the galaxy smasher, but you, you've destroyed the entire universe. And he's, he's really excited about it. And, <laughs> and we became great friends after that. And Lee was an idol, actually. I loved her stuff. I still reread it. Uh, the Eric John Stark stories were probably my favorite of all. And and the novels, um, she revisited with the three novels, right? Yes, she the, did. Yeah. yeah, which I didn't like quite as much, but you know they were they were better than nothing. So I, I was I was glad to read them. And Claire, also, are you familiar with her work? As well? No, I'm not really. I mean, I know her name, but I I, I probably read read. Uh, must have read something at some point. Now, do you recall being aware of any non-white authors at the time who were working within your sphere and getting much attention, or not at all? It's almost wholly white. I mean, even even the idealistic writers who were against racism almost never had a non-white character in their stories. I was just reading called the Eagle, and they still do an Eagle Award for the you know it's a com- it's a big comic award, and uh, they were then there by uh, Frank Hampson, drawn by Frank Hampson, and Arthur C. Clarke was. Um, Contributing ideas, not not actual stories, but but story ideas to it. By 1999, um, the the world was at peace. There was a world government. You know, everybody was equal. Everybody, and it and it made a big thing of this. You know, this this is an important part of the stories. Um, so I, at the moment, I'm just mourning the fact that that Britain's getting out of the EU because I see the EU, you know, as a beginning of a of a you know of an alliance of of if you like, of nation states or whatever. It's 
still looking after everybody you know, and everybody equal, everybody with the boat, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. And uh, and that's what, what Dan Dare, the future, you know, Dan Dare's future 1999, in which they were already on Venus, but it was populated by uh, by various different peoples, who, of course, featured largely in it. But um, you've got green people, lots of green people, um, yellow people, I mean, bright yellow people, but you never saw um, a brown face or a black face or you know any other kind of face except pure white. <laughs> and, um, Dan's most, I think, he made his, uh, his space crew international was a was a Frenchman and a Canadian. That was about it. <laughs> well, the scene certainly has changed, so it's all to the good. Yes, they have. Yeah, things have improved a lot, and yeah. um, the 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 in England. Um, racialism, I mean, the bad, ra- I mean, serious conscious racialism came when, when the West Indians started to come to, to England for the jobs because, you know, everybody had been killed in the war. And, right. and so they wanted the West the, Indians. Uh, the to- Windward Generation, is that right? Um, that, yeah, they were, they were um, it was the 50s, yeah. uh, really. And I remember the first black guy I met ever i mean i'd never never met a black guy before i'd hardly seen a black guy but he was he was working as a store to the building that tarzan was edited from and occasionally i'd just go outside and and, and he'd go outside and we we'd just be chatting you know um and i said i'm really glad you black guy I said oh what was that he wasn't used to that you know <laughs> i said uh, because you know they were used to getting shit from people but at that time it was pretty bad i'm, I'm not saying everywhere but but you know they they got it. I mean they definitely got it. And the more you turned up, it was us youths who used to get seized by the police all the time. You know, we, they, all they had was white youth 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 to to arrest for you know for anything they felt like arresting them for. It took the cops' attention away from what what we were doing, us bad white kids were doing, and focused on good good black guys. I mean they weren't they weren't doing anything. Yeah. Thing. I mean, I knew one or two guys who, who were pretty bad, I must say. Um, because I, 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 I went, by 1962, I think, I was living in Notting Hill, which was the main area of Indians at the time. So most of my neighbours by that time were West Indians. And the reason I was living there was the same reason they were living there, was that it was cheap. Um, you know, it was, it was considered a, a ghetto and horrified that I was living in this uh, place because it got all kinds of bad publicity from the newspapers. There were so-called race riots and stuff like that. There weren't. There weren't race riots. I mean, there were just a few white, few black guys just having it out. But there wasn't anything sort of serious about it. Even then, it lasted about two days while we had hot weather, which was very rare in London and sent everybody crazy. Um, but by that time, I'd. I'd Joined something called the um, what was it called? It was the Race Relations. I think it was called the Race Relations Council, and it was uh, it was actually a um, an attempt to to put in, into legislation um, anti-racist laws, and everybody said it wouldn't work. You know, you can't legislate against racism and so on. And to some extent, that's true. But to some extent, in my experience, it isn't true. If you make it illegal, it means it makes it. Beyond the pale, yeah, <laughs> which is a word, a phrase used uh, for Jews in Russia, <laughs> but it, it does. It puts it. It puts it outside of you know decent, right. decent uh, conversation, as it were. Yeah. Did that time, uh, you know, now being exposed to new cultures, and I would imagine that was also when a lot of South Asians were coming to England. 
did that yeah, really um, influence your sort of creation of, of other cultures in your fantasy fiction? South Asians, which are pr- primarily Pakistanis and Indians, of course, I mean, and Bangladeshis, although I think Bangladesh didn't break away until a bit later. Three or so there, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, they're not actually treated in the same way that the West Indians were treated. The West Indians were considered to bring in um, drugs, knife crime, and that sort of thing. And what, I mean, the only guy I knew I could ever get any dope from was was black. Um, and he was when he was arrested, it meant nobody got any drugs. I mean, it just, it just disappeared completely. Um, and uh, and those, you know, they ran prostitutes. Around, I mean, both sides, both houses, both both the houses, either side of the one I lived in, were there were prostitutes run by black guys. That was the only time I ever saw any sort of bad stuff. Most most of the West Indians I knew were just you know nice, ordinary people trying to get on and make a living. Um, but but even even sixties Oswald Mosley, the black shirt, the fascist, the actual fascist who'd been a pre-war sort of follower of Hitler's. Um, although to be fair, he, well to be fair, no point in being fair. <laughs> um, he. He was still trying to get elected in Notting Hill, which was considered to be a, a, a racially charged area. Um, and I think he got about 19 votes. So he he, he, he stopped standing up, nothing against him. I mean, I belonged to various groups um, that were um, working against racism um, and racists at the time. We, we I've, I've told this story before, but we, we actually of Tarzan Adventures and, and myself, we'd become friends by that time. We joined, um, we joined a, an, a fascist organization infiltrating it. You, you, the idea was to infiltrate it, find out what they were up to, you know, and so doing it, um, or be able to quote them and stuff like that. And uh, it turned out that every one of the people in this tiny group that we belonged to um, was an infiltrator. There was only <laughs> one... Uh, and she was the widow of, of, of a, uh, she was a little old lady and she was hard. This was anti-Jewish mostly. And the, this little old lady, she'd, 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 had, she'd say, come in boys, come in. Cause we were all, of course, kids, you know, come in, you know, have some tea, you know, so sit down and, uh, you know, and have some cake and say, Oh, thank you. I mean, I can't, oh. Anyway, Lise, Mrs. Lisa, I think her name was, um, and then she'd say, you know about the Jews, of course, you know, and the blacks coming in, that's terrible, you know, and so on. She'd be pouring tea, this little white-haired old lady. Yes, you know, terrible. And, and, uh, and, and thinking, you know, we, we've got it here, you know, and, and stuff. And it turned out we really were, she was the only actual fascist in the lot of us. Uh, did you find that at the time the other kind of authors in the kind of fantasy fiction world were like-minded to you, or do you find that there were just as many assholes there as there are anywhere else? Just as many assholes. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the only person who was really thoroughly on my side was uh, John Brunner. I don't know if you, you know John Brunner. He was, uh, unfortunately, um, he died about 20 odd years ago and his work went out of print. There's not much of it in print. Um, but he was a very good writer. I mean, he was a, he was a journeyman writer. He wrote almost half that were coming out at the time. Um, but he also wrote some very good, um, I don't know what you call it, literary science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, John was also um, very anti-racist. So I got on with John and um, 
and you know, and uh, these sort of might think, tut, tut, that's not very nice, but they weren't activists in any sense. Um, and then when I came to America, I realized, you know, half the writers were, were, <laughs> were close to being fat. How many of them were supporting the Vietnam War, for instance, and, right. uh, you know, and wanted to send more troops and all that sort of stuff. And, and writers that, um, some of which, you know, I was really surprised at all those views. So I, I it, no, I mean, generally speaking, most of my most of my friends were not in the science fiction world. I mean, most of my um, activists were in the science fiction world. I think that maybe the difference between American science fiction and the British is that, and you, you sort of pointed out, maybe the American science fiction is much more technocratic than the British science fiction was. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, and I, it just didn't interest me very much, and of course. Since, uh, you know, I've been calling Campbell. I, I actually, years ago, there was a convention. I think Campbell was in one of the world conventions. I think the first one that was held in London, or maybe the second, anyway. And I, 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 I got very drunk with some friends. We, I was supposed to go on a panel with Campbell the next day. But we pretended that, to have the panel, and I pretended to be Campbell, um, you know, and coming up with these, these things, you know, <laughs> um, um, you know, Heil Hitler stuff, as it were. And and uh, we went off. I thought that's an exaggeration. It could never happen. When Campbell actually came on, he was worse than I could actually conceive of. I oh, mean, he was no. extraordinary. Um, uh, the first thing I remember him saying was that um, there were, it was the Watts riots were going on at the time. This is been 64. Well, he said the reason that these black guys are, are rioting now, he said, is because they secretly they really want to be re-enslaved. That was his idea of solving the um, the problem was to. And I'm not I'm not kidding. Ooh. I mean, it, it was it was beyond beyond anything you know any sane person could 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 possibly imagine. Yeah. And the same panel with me and John, I just broke down. I mean, I, I was just so. Of course, I was also hungover, but but um, I I I I just broke down, and the only words I said in the whole time were, were science fiction. Started crying <laughs> because I, I just couldn't believe. Campbell just went on. He he looked. He turned to one of the other panelists. He said, "Is he all right? Is he okay?" John was better at at that kind of debate than I was, and he he actually slaughtered Campbell. And Campbell then appealed to the audience. I wouldn't think there was probably there may have been one conservative in the entire audience, um, and there were journalists there, um, all, all of a sort of liberal disposition. And Campbell is appealing to them, trying to say, "Well, you know, Campbell—that's a barbarian name, and I'm of barbarian stock." And everybody knows that the Campbells in Scotland are known as the Traitor Campbells. They weren't in any way barbarians, <laughs> and as uh, of the English. Um, so, I mean, there's no sort of it was just it just went down like a lead balloon for Campbell. I mean, but <laughs> um, but but it was just just I mean you could not parody stuff like that. Right. It wouldn't be acceptable. Right. And and then sort of towards the seventies, there was started becoming more of a feminist element in your work. I think with yeah. Oriana and and some of the later Eternal Champion books as well. Yes, yeah, so, and and in fact, in the in the sixties, I'd done one Black Eternal Champion. Um, he wasn't. I mean, it wasn't an issue. I mean, I just happened to make him black because. You know, all the others were white, and I thought, what the fuck? You know, I ought to have a black character in here. But I, I also didn't feel entirely comfortable writing from another 
person, another culture's point of view. I mean, it, it um, appropriation. Pro- appropriation, stuff like that. Now, but but um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that's, you know, all of that is, you know, makes sense because we're one big culture ultimately. From our cultures, what we want from them. Um, but, um, and, and I can understand some of it, of course, going down badly with people. I mean, I, I um, but it was, um, I've lost my thread. I mean, I'm just sorry. I just feminism. In- oh yeah, feminism. Yeah, and uh, by um, well, again in the '60s, I read Kate Millett's um, Sexual Politics in Evergreen Review. It's first published '66, and I read that, and it completely gave me a, a frame for what had been bothering me. I mean, it, you know how you you kind of have things that bother you. You can't be sure what they are, and then you. You read a book and it kind of tells you pretty much what. what sure, they what, give you the words that you were looking for. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I, I um, <clears throat> became a pretty active feminist, um, more so than my wife at the time. I mean, it was a very strange situation, you know, because I was I was totally convinced by this, but a lot of women of, of my generation certainly were slightly uncomfortable with having to take a feminist position because it meant changing their lives completely. I mean, if they wanted to take a really, you know, a really strong political um, position. Um, and um, I was prepared for that, you know, I, I, and uh, I was also working on, on uh, early underground magazines. So, so, you know, there were women on that who were basically making the tea and doing the typing. And it was crazy to me that you know, these were supposed to be progressive magazines, and they were the the, the women really doing you know doing doing the writing. They were they were still doing the um, you know the shit jobs, as it were. So I I did get I still think of feminism as being um, as good a as good a political position as anyone to have. You know, you could be a green, you could be anything, but I think probably green feminism pretty much does the whole foods all the other all the other bad stuff, um, or rather it attacks all the other bad stuff. That's great. Now, I have a question that I'd like to pose to you. So um, I have a theory, or an opinion rather, that I've expressed on the show before that I'm going to express to you, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. So my opinion is that Dungeons & Dragons ruined fantasy fiction. And what I mean by that, and this is kind of funny coming from somebody who's got a whole podcast about the literary roots of Dungeons and Dragons, but prior to Dungeons and Dragons coming along, it feels like you could really make fantasy and science fiction anything you wanted it to be. And once Dungeons and Dragons got really popular, it's as though society came together and decided this is what a dragon is. Uh, you, You need to have an elf in your story. You need to have a dwarf in your story. All of these things kind of coalesce together. And and in my opinion, the result of that has turned into a really kind of homogenized um, packaged product for fantasy fiction post the Dungeons and Dragons era. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. 100%. But I don't just blame Dungeons and Dragons, to be fair. Um, But but I think, I mean, I hadn't actually thought of it as being chiefly uh, Dungeons and Dragons being the chief but I think, you, you know, now you say it, I think you're probably right. I hadn't seen that as being the villain of the piece, as it were. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd thought of publishers, really. Publishers, once publishers get an idea of what the broad, they go for that market. And it becomes harder and harder 
Uh, it's always been like that. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was true, of, I'm sure, of detective fiction, all kinds of fiction before this. One of the reasons that I did New Worlds was because I didn't just think that science fiction was moribund. Um, I thought that uh, all fiction was pretty much moribund and that a shot of, fiction, a shot of literary fiction into science fiction was, was actually going to be a good thing for, for both of them. And I think it turned out to be true because there's, there are now, there's a much broader acceptance of, of certain kinds of ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. But that's, when, I, when I first came up, science fiction was dominated by to make it very realistic, which you know you had uh, you had to suspend disbelief by having kind of ordinary characters in it, you know, military characters or whatever it was. There was very little um, internal uh, stuff that examined people, you know, in, people internally. Um, very little that, that examined the whole nature of fantasy itself, which is something that I tried to do in in my. Um, so, although. It's a, the the genre does seem pretty moribund to me now, um, from what I see of it. Not sure it was entirely the fault of D and D, but I, but I, but now you mentioned it. I mean, D and D probably did. It certainly set the expectations. I know that Elric gets called an elf all the time, and I mean, I've, to me, elves aren't you three wishes if you, you know, if you dig them up by accident or something. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but that, of course, comes from Tolkien as well. I mean, Tolkien yes. also, I think people imitated Tolkien. All the first fantasy stories except Elric seem to, uh, Elric and stuff that derived from Conan anyway, mm-hmm. um, which I would put Elric with, um, I think they, they came to imitation Tolkien books. I mean, a lot of the early books would just just seem to be the same, you know, pretty much the same with the names changed. Sure. I would say the one bright light on the access to sort of e-publishing, we're seeing a lot of more independent uh, authors, people of color, lesbian, gay, transgender, uh, women who are speaking in their own voices. It's just that it's not getting to the level of sort of mind share that is sort of deep. Yeah. Has yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. That, that's, a, that, you know, that's a good solution, but it also provides its own problems in that it, it tends to go to the already to the converted, as it were, it preaches. Is already part of that that group. Um, whereas if you if you put it in a magazine like fantasy and science fiction, say, you get a broader um, stuff. But um, we started publishing trans transgender fiction pretty early in New Worlds. We had uh, probably one of the first um, people who changed gender um, as as one of our writers, and um, people like Joanna Russ were um, were, were were very Sort of prominent in our in our kind of circle, although she was never actually published in New Worlds, um, and we were trying to get women into um, or women writers, um, which was hard enough at the time. Yeah, because um, people didn't see it as their as their genre, I suppose. Little side thought, because you mentioned about you know the Brexit and stuff like that. I was really struck by the Hawkmoon books of you're consciously making the heroes the Germans and the French. <laughs> and the, the British, the villains. So I thought that was a little very ap- appropriate for this time. Yeah, well, and that's what the BBC like about it too. So they're, they're, that's why they're developing. It's one of the reasons they're developing it at the, at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, that came directly out of my refusal to write war comics when I was at IPC, um, because they did a lot of 
battle comics of different kinds and flyers. I didn't mind doing that because it was kind of knights of the air, you know, and, and uh, it didn't have that same kind of nasty, yeah. Um, but I, I refused at Fleetway to write war comics um, because calling people names, which is which went on in those war comics. And, uh, and I thought they just made things, you know, that much worse for everybody. They didn't do any, any good whatsoever. And I, I am very moralistic, I suppose. Um, and I actually, they, they tried to fire me at Fleetway because I wouldn't do it. They, they, they decided I, must, I had to be a communist. Because, uh, because, you know, because I disagreed with, uh, with calling Germans squareheads or whatever. And so when I came to do the Hawkmoon books, I, I had a chance uh, to, you know, to, to, to make, as you say, the French and the Germans the, the heroes. Um, and it was just a small attack on, on, uh, on the guys who were you know, still doing the war comics. Right. And also, of course, that was at the heart of the Vietnam War. So, I, again, I noticed that the, the Kamar argued almost jungle state, sort of in resistance to this overwhelming global power. So I was wondering mm-hmm. if that was related anyway. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we, I mean the, you know, you, the Vietnam War was just huge in our, in our and uh, I, I mean, the, I think it was the second Jerry Cornelius novel I wrote was really, I had um, basically the Americans invading Britain um, for our own good. And uh, that was, that was a straight, analogy with the Vietnam War. And I, I actually took quotes from various generals and put them in the mouths of, of my invented characters and, and so on. It was um, I, the first, that, so a guy called Felix, I think his name is, I can't remember, Felix something. He, he, he did a book of photographs, uh, which he took in Vietnam. And they were absolutely horrifying. And I remember um, sitting just, just, just crying my eyes out, looking at these 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 terrible pictures. And, uh, and yet, half an hour later, I was I was I was writing a sort of comedy, Jerry Cornelius story, um, in which you know, in which I I've got the Americans napalming um, Knightsbridge in London, and Jerry uh, trying to avoid the napalm, but stopping at the traffic lights when, uh, you know, when they turn red. So, so stuff like that. <laughs> well, people do behave in strange, strange, because, you know, I was, I, I, I was, I was born uh, at a time when we were getting rockets dropped on right, us right. all the time. And, and the area that I lived in was the, the most uh, B bombs mm. dropped on it. So we, we were very much aware of what it was like to, right, right. So you were evacuated as a, as a young child? No, no, no. My, my mother was evacuated for about, I think, five days, and she couldn't stand it in the country. And uh, came, um, there may have been a, a, a lull in the war or something, you know, that may have been why she did it, but she couldn't stand it. So, so no, we went through the whole war um, in London. And, and so I think that obviously must have really influenced your sort of aesthetic Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love ruins. I mean, I grew up in ruins. Um, I, I mean, the, the other thing is the malleable landscapes where you could actually come out of your house changed, you know, just because bombs had dropped on bits of it. And and uh, and I remember I went the first school that I was going to. I didn't go to it very long because they dropped a bomb on it. And I, we were all delighted. It, it went down on at night, so nobody got killed. So with that, you know, school. You know, we we used to pray for for Hitler to to you know bomb more schools. 
So actually, that's yeah. We just read uh, last week, Jeff, right? The Earl Albeck story. So it's right on the edge of chaos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. We're talking about those malleable landscapes, and um, what was the other story that we read with the Elric um, and uh, Fire Jester, Singing um, mm-hmm. Citadel? Yes. Right. So, what is your uh, opinion on the? Are you current, currently caught up in sort of? Fantasy? No, not at all. Um, yeah. Not really. I, I um, to be honest, I'm disappointed. Um, I'd hope for for more from from the genre when when we were doing New Worlds and you know the whole book was called kind of remember what it was called now but somebody named it is it the New Wave was that it um, <laughs> something like yes um, and uh, um, I I had hoped to see more ambitious work being published work isn't being written and probably being published and uh, on on uh, you know, as ebooks and so on, but but because uh, I like China Mieville, I think he's very good. Um, but I haven't read it; I haven't seen anything of his lately. I'm not sure he's had anything out for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a there's another writer, um, <laughs> completely forget Brian Catlin, his name is, mm-hmm. and he wrote three or published them as three books. Um, it's about a world called the Vor, a forest. And on the edge of the forest is a is a colonial power, uh, Germanic, I think it is. It's like a um, German colonists, and uh, they're they're trying to log the forest and also find ways, in kinds of stuff, ways of fighting back. And it is um, pretty much a straight metaphor for colonialism, but a very subtle one. It's not it's not just you know sort of uh, and all the rest of it, the the, the sim- simplistic stuff that I have seen and not liked an awful lot. It's sort of common civilized talk presented as even fresh, which I don't find particularly interesting, if you know what I mean. I mean, uh, I don't know if that means anything to you. Sure. Um, Yeah. And one of the things that I've noticed, the more of your work that I've read, I mean, it's very clear that your work has been hugely influential on Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. But it's also very clear to me that there are a lot of other contemporary authors whose works are getting a lot of attention right now who've also read your works. The first thing that comes to my mind is George R.R. R. Martin. And it does seem like the Game of Thrones series also borrows a lot of things heavily from Elric. You know, you've got the ancient dragon lords who once ruled the lands and were this kind of um, this race of people who were dangerous and insane or whatever, and they're, they're, they're no longer in control. Um, I'm, I'm curious how you feel about maybe Game of Thrones and also how you feel about the kind of um, echoes of your works that you can find in contemporary, contemporary fiction. Well, um, I've just been talking about that uh, because uh, the Pullman um, series has, has just started to air on uh, BBC, I think. Um, and that uses the multiverse idea and, and so on. And people are saying, you know, that it's, it borrows from me. And, and mm-hmm. so I've just been writing a bit about that on, on Facebook. And uh, sometimes I get... The main thing I, I feel is that I don't like being... Seeing some somebody who came who was born born about five years after Elric was published, you know that sort of thing. Um, that 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 does get get to me a little bit. Um, you know, I suppose it would. I would not to say it didn't affect me, um, but it's mainly <laughs> mainly the fact that all these guys are getting a lot more money than I ever got for it. So, I, so I, <laughs> Jesus, you know, I could it would make my life could uh, you know. 
buy myself a house, you know, just like that and that sort of thing, you know, and uh, pay off my mortgage. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and that's partly my own fault because um, I've never been particularly interested in money, but I'm, I'm going to be 80 this birthday. And uh, you start to think in terms of, uh, of uh, getting a good health insurance or something like that. Sure. <laughs> but, but generally, I haven't, I haven't read Game of Thrones. Um, people do occasionally write to me and say, you know, this is ripping, ripping me off and that's ripping But I don't know how much of that comes from George and how script writers. Um, and I've, I mean, you know, I've known, I don't know George particularly well, but I, I used to see him around a few times in Los Angeles. He used to be a TV writer then. And uh, he's a nice guy. Um, he, you know, he's done what he's done. I, 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 it's Terry Pratchett who I think summed it up best for me. Terry said that genre fiction is, is a huge pot and and you put some back into that part. You know, that's that's what you do as a as a as a writer of a certain genre, right. and um, which is fair enough, I think. You know, we all take from somebody. I, I took from the Broken Sword by Paul Anderson enormously. It's a huge influence on me, and T. Uh, H. Um, White was an influence. You know, there are lots of authors that that have influenced me. You try to you you basically try to put something fresh in. You know put some new ingredients into the pot, as it were, and, and, uh, and that seems fair. What, what seems unfair is people who just big um, dollops of, of stuff out of the pot and, uh, and call it their own work. Yeah. Um, right. You know, that's, that's sort of, uh, but I think that annoys everybody. But the other thing is that if you've read and it's engaged you and, and thrilled you, then that work is always going to be more important than anything else that you ever read after that. So it's it's not, you know, it's it's not really any but it's it's just some writers are more original than others. I think that's all you could say. Right. Um and and some people like to read the same damn book over and over again. I mean just, <laughs> it's it, true. And I can't stand it. I mean that's why books I, mean, I just get bored. Over 60 books, 80 books now that you've written. Um, it, I, well, I'm called it's. I'm told it's a hundred, but I. But that's probably just publicity. You know, right. people like to have a nice round number like that. <laughs> uh, I, it's probably fair that uh, I, I don't want to speak 100% for Jeff, but I think that it's an interesting sort of. Uh, you're talking about this ladle metaphor and this stew pot. Um, your work has actually brought us full circle to some of these. These are obviously one of the first writers I read, other than perhaps Tolkien from Dungeons and Dragons, and. From that, I think we started this project, uh, Jeff and I, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, looking at some of the fiction, and that's how we got to read Paul. Paul and, hey, wow, you know. <laughs> so, well, that's what know. I tried to do. You know, I tried to I tried to bring people to the the writers that I I loved. You know, you, you always want to do that. I mean, it's like it's almost like being uh, you know really just help and say, hey, you know, have you read this? <laughs> <laughs> luckily, luckily, the books don't usually give you a a formula for living. Right. <laughs> well, I can definitely say I'm very grateful that because of this project, we've uh, come across your work because I had not read any of your works prior to this. And I will say that as I've been reading these stories, um, when I read Jack Vance's The Eyes of the Overworld, that was the first story that made me actually laugh out loud. And Stormbringer was the first story of the series that I read that actually brought t- actual tears to my eyes. So thank you very much. Oh, Thank you. Thank you. I love Jack Vance too, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. 
Eyes of the Overworld is fabulous. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the Dying Earth stories and the Elric stories are absolutely my favorites of all the ones we've read. Yeah. Oh, great. And and, and to to understand again to just take it to the broken swords that that uh, that primal power have it and he, I don't think he ever approached it again that that same level. I mean, you know, well, you no, know. he didn't. He yeah. never. He never. He he uh, he rewrote the broken sword and it, he he spoiled it. Yeah. I mean, he just. The, the rewrite made it strange what he did. And yeah, like the poetry. I, he, he was sort of torn between, I think this is this also explains a lot of science fiction. He was torn between his sort of romantic fantasy in, enthusiasms and that, and his tendency as an engineer to rationalize and try to make everything, you know, sort of exact and, and, uh, and, and properly enclosed and mapped out and all. What Campbell used to encourage right. him to do, and Poole is a great Campbell writer. Right. Um, I mean, you are able to keep the romance even in stories that are seemingly um, uh, non-fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I can't help it. It's just. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's that. But no, I think that's that. That uh, there is sometimes I think a fear of emotion, a fear of passion in in science fiction and fantasy writing. And it's to the credit of all the work that I've read of yours that that that's not a fear, you know. No, no, and and that's really in a sense what the whole new wave was about um, was was trying to you know trying to re-engage them. You, you see it in Wells and H.G. Wells in his early books. He's he's completely fired up by the romantic images of, of the Time Machine, for instance, or the Island of Doctor Moreau, all of which were written in his what first year. But then, as he went on, he started trying to rationalize things and and uh, and really preach to the you know to 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 the reader, and uh, all of that began to disappear. So there are very few in later wells, but but great images in the in the early books. Well, this has been so much fun. Is there any kind of last thing that you would like to express that you think our listeners might want to hear, or I don't know? Well, I've I've got a new record out. It's the first one I've done in I think about at least twenty years. I think it's called uh, it's called um, what's it called? Oh, live live at the Terminal Cafe, um, and it's a complete lie. It's a studio album. Um, <laughs> it's uh, um, it's, uh, it's just out uh, last couple of months from uh, Records in in Los Angeles. And uh, it's 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 a sort of fantasy. It's a I don't know if you've read Blood and uh, um, War Amongst the Angels, which are which which are very weird books. But it's sort of based on uh, on the songs that are likely to be sung at the Terminal Cafe, which is the which is a real cafe actually in Mississippi. But I moved it down to Biloxi uh, to be on the uh, be in the gambling circuit. It's a it's a it, they're books about. On. And the record is songs based, mostly songs based on uh, on the, those books. So yeah, I'm plugging I'm plugging my my album. Oh, my Great, we'll put, that in the, we'll put that in the show notes for the episode. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> we'll send people in that direction. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us. This has been so much fun chatting with you. Yeah, I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, bye. Bye. All right. So that was our interview with Michael Moorcock. 
Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. If you would like to follow us on social media, you can go to at appendix underscore N to follow us on Twitter. We're also on MeWe and Facebook as Appendix N Book Club. You can also email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. And if you would like to show us some support, you can head on over to patreon.com slash appendixnbookclub. We would like to give a shout out to a few of our patrons, Daniel Bishop, Noah Green, Fletcher A. Vradenberg, Andy Action, Frank Maybe, Ethan Schoonover, and Stanley Raduski. Thank you all so much for supporting this show. And with that, this is the end of this interview. So, wow, really exciting. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, with the next episode, we will be returning to our normal format. So the episode after this is going to be on Robert E. Howard's Conan the Adventurer. And then episode 60 will be on Fritz Leiber's The Swords of Lankmar. Thank you so much. Read on. The library is closed. All right. Hey, that was fucking awesome.